is brought to you by Exclusive Books, celebrating getting more books to more people. How can this be that it's the 1st of November already? I feel like the end of the year has snuck up on us like a sneaky plot twist out of a Stephen King novel. But here's hoping your November is more romantic comedy than ghoulish horror novel. Welcome to Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, sponsored by Exclusive Books. With me, your host, Paige Nick, and a whole team of reviewers keen to whet your literary appetite with a host of new book reviews and interviews. Today, we're opening the show with Beverly Rose Miller and the new John Boyne novel. This is the follow-up to his Boy in the Striped Pajamas, which has been a multi-million copy bestseller around the world for years now. This new follow-up is called All the Broken Places. Shirley Guler reviews Mercury Pictures Presents by Anthony Mara. This one looks like a blockbuster. After that, our very best Anthony Freejohn reviews Kruger Self-Drive, Roots, Roads and Ratings, perfectly timed for anyone considering a trip to the Kruger these upcoming holidays. John Hanks read the latest Tony Park novel called The Pride, and he'll be here to tell us all about that. Then we have a new reviewer joining us, Rachel van der Feyfer. Rachel is a grade 8 student at Redham in Durbanville, and she'll be joining us over the next few weeks to tell us about lots of different YA titles. Vanessa Levenstein and I get chatting about the new one from Sipiwe Gloria and Glovu. We have both devoured these books. They are must-reads. We had to talk about them. Beryl Eichenberger dips into some great crime with a new novel from Irma Fenter called Red Tide, while Twanji Kalula reports back on a book called Too Big to Jail by Chris Blackhurst, and this book takes us inside HSBC, the Mexican drug cartels, and the greatest banking scandal of the century. And then we wrap up the show with an interview that I was lucky enough to get to do with the author of an international bestseller to high-concept novel called The Measure by Nikki Ehrlich. So let's start the show. Chapter one, page one, sentence one. Welcome to the show, Beverly Rose Miller. I remember reading The Boy in the Striped Pajamas many years ago, and it completely undid me. There are some sections I still remember today. I saw recently that he's brought out the follow-up to this book, he managed the haunting subject of the Holocaust with such a deft hand in that first book. I'm interested to hear if he manages to pull it off again with this one. I suspect he will. Is redemption possible in the face of a great historical evil? And what if you were still a child and therefore not directly responsible for that horror? Gretel is an old woman living quietly in a comfortable London flat, yet carrying a very dark burden. We have met her once before in Irish author John Boyne's heartbreaking and unexpectedly best-selling novel for young adults on the Holocaust, The Boy in the Striped Pyjamas. That boy in the striped pyjamas was Bruno, Gretel's younger brother, his sad destiny linked to her father's rank as commandant of the death camp for Jews. Gretel was 12 at the time, fancifully in love with a handsome, blonde, young Nazi officer, Kurt. Gretel and her mother escape after the war, hiding in France under assumed names, but their accent gives them away. And in a bout of post-war vengeance, their formerly pleasant neighbours give them a beating and painfully shear their skulls, the punishment routinely meted out to collaborators. 
Gretel's attractive mother becomes an alcoholic, an unrepentant Hitlerite. After her death, Gretel sails to Australia, hoping to disappear into oblivion. But here her former Nazi crush appears, as handsome and anti-Semitic as ever, so she flees again. Gretel eventually does marry a kind man who is one of the very few who have ever known her secret, her shameful taint, as the daughter of a man hanged for war crimes. Her life is relatively prosperous, with a rather disappointing son, and she reaches the age of 91 thinking she has hidden her past. That changes when a young family moves into the apartment below her. A beautiful though erratic wife, a quiet artistic nine-year-old boy named Henry, and a bullying movie mogul of a father, whose visits seem increasingly sinister. If Gretel reports Henry's father for physical and emotional abuse, she will reveal her sordid origins, for which she feels so responsible. But she cannot ignore the fragile, frightened boy, nor the guilt she feels for her own brother's death and all those children in the camps. The choice she makes is emphatic and controversial. It is one born out of necessity for her, rather than redemption, for that she feels she will never find. Her own solution is morally questionable, though it feeds into her own sense of vengeance for terrible wrongs committed. I met John Boyne, born in 1971, some years ago, when we talked about child abuse in the Catholic Churches of Ireland, something that had happened to him. The vulnerability of children is very close to his heart. This is an interesting and unexpected sequel to The Boy in the Striped Pyjamas, this time written for adults. I found All the Broken Places by John Boyne very readable and very thought-provoking. We now welcome Shirley Guler to tell us about a book called Mercury Pictures Presents by Anthony Mara. I like the cover of this book. Does the content live up to it, Shirley? Let it be said, I must be in the minority when I say I couldn't get to grips with Anthony Mara's Mercury Pictures Presents. The cover quotes several people who call it genius, cracking with wit, intimate and sweeping, and the New York Times even calls it elegant. Yes, there are elements of all of that, but I found it somewhat overwritten, a wannabe epic that tries too hard. I think it could have done with a good cut by a Reader's Digest condensed books editor. By covering so much in 400 pages with so many characters and situations, Myra never managed to pull me in, never gripped me to see how it all came together in the end. Maybe I was distracted every time I picked it up, and I tried often because I never give up on a book. And in this case, you really have to read every word in case the dense language conceals an important fact. Being a devotee of moderate alliteration myself, I found Mara's use of said alliteration just for its own sake irritating. A randy reading of Genesis? Really? On the other hand, a phrase like, volleys of verbiage, was evocative, and an airbrush artist of autobiography immediately spoke of a huge economy of truth. There's also some beautifully descriptive language, such as the pianist lunging through Schoenberg with the violent elegance of a cat stalking a butterfly across a keyboard. You can just imagine this 12-tone escapade. 
Do you see where I'm conflicted? While Mercury Pictures Presents is based in Hollywood with flashbacks to Italy and forward to the war in Germany, my overall sense is one of New York speak and a private eyes office. Maybe that's a bonus, that you are immediately in the mindset of the 1940s with the way television characters express themselves, but I found it hard to swallow and harder with which to identify. Many of the characters were almost irrelevant small-timers in the large, even seedy, Mercury Studios. While Artie Feldman and Maria Lagana, his Italian go-to work crutch, were as large as life, many other characters suffered. I did identify with Maria, the Italian immigrant making really good but with a guilty conscience as she goes on her voyage of discovery to find out what happened to the father she let down. It's no spoiler to say he languished in prison, a man who crossed Mussolini. Producer Artie Feltman was also a good character to come to terms with, but it's more than enough to know that Artie and his brother Ned had a checkered relationship and even more checkered marriages without delving into illicit affairs which had nothing of intrinsic value. It's their power struggle that is eventually resolved and ultimately to Maria's benefit. Touching on unequal pay for women was just a passing sentence which I would have liked to have seen explored more. Much is captivating and rings true, like the adaptation of refugees and emigres to a new country, taking what jobs they could at a fraction of their worth through necessity. It's another issue worth exploring, and Mercury's adaptation to the war effort as it found new life as a producer and propagator of propaganda, sorry for the alliteration, that's expedience at its best. Mari shows how the war was an opportunity for many, but it really was hard work for assimilated Americans who suddenly became enemy aliens with curfews and restrictions on travel and work. It is telling and profoundly sad that a German emigre architect relives her Berlin through the scale model she designed of her much-missed neighborhood for use in one of those propaganda films. There are also some lovely vignettes, such as the one about a passport photographer in Italy who made an extra print then gave half to the subject, anticipating the return of the second half to indicate safe arrival in the land of opportunity. As I said, this cast of thousands didn't cut it for me, but I'm prepared to eat my words, for there is clearly much of value in this sprawling story.
That was Gabriel's Oboe from The Mission, with the orchestra conducted by composer Ennio Morricone. And you're tuned into Book Choice in our new Tuesday lunchtime spot, right here on Fine Music Radio. As always, sponsored by our friends at Exclusive Books. Are you planning a trip to the Kruger National Park anytime soon? Or maybe it's on your bucket list for one day. If that's the case, this next review is definitely for you. Anthony Frijon revs us up with Kruger Self-Drive, Roots, Roads and Ratings by Funnenberg. Hi there, Anthony. Kruger Self-Drive, Roots, Roads and Ratings. That prosaic title belies what lies between the covers of the superb book. Whether you're a regular or infrequent visitor, this magnificent book will add so much to your experience of journeying around this glorious park. If you've never visited the Kruger Park, Kruger Self-Drive will surely make you want to correct that omission. Using this book, you can plan a visit to the KNP that will give you all the information you'll need to make it a wonderful experience. Generously filled with excellent photographs, illustrations of what wildlife can be seen, the flora and fauna, and of course, the detailed maps of the roads, the main roads and the dozens of loop roads. The tarred and untarred roads are clearly indicated. The gravel, untarred roads, are well maintained. It's obvious that the authors have travelled on every single road in the park. They're all marked with a star from one star, indicating a mostly quiet road with little activity, up to five stars, good sightings and or scenically rewarding. Distances between the gates and camps. There is detailed information on all the camps, major and minor. The facilities available, water holes in the area, best spots to see game, and what game is likely to be seen at that particular spot. Yes, this book is that detailed. A few examples, places that are safe for you to get out of your car, where caravan sites are, where you'll find an ATM, spots where you can get something to drink. One of the pleasures of the K&P is getting away from the crowded routes. Skakuza to Lower Sabi, for example, Yes, there's usually excellent sightings of the Big Five, but everyone seems to know that and it can be a bit of a traffic jam. Explore a little deeper and discover the pleasure of stopping at a waterhole off the beaten track. Let the silence envelop you. A silence broken only by a bird call. If you're particularly fortunate, the haunting cry of a fish eagle. There's always the possibility of an unexpected visit from an animal. The challenge of writing this review was, what should I mention? Have I left something important out? Should I mention the section on the various eco-zones? The KNP is nearly 20,000 square kilometers in area. 2,000 plant species, mammal species, 148 or more, 500 bird species, 118 reptile species, of which 51 are snakes. Kruger Park Self-Drive can be bought at bookstores for 750 Rand or directly from the publisher's website www.hphpublishing.co.za for 695 Rand. The smaller version, Kruger Roots, is available at the shops in the K&P for 395 Rand. A note, that is the smaller version. 750 Rand is a lot of money for a book, but this is an investment. 
the return will be enhancing your visit to the Kruger Park. I would go so far as to suggest, if you can afford it, get two copies, one to keep at home and one to take with you. This copy is going to be well used. Text by Ingrid van den Berg, photos by Philip and Ingrid van den Berg and Heinrich van den Berg. Kruger Self-Drive, Roots, Roads and Ratings. This is a five-star book, recommended without reserve. My copy joins books I treasure. Thank you so much. You've made me want to pack a bag and head to the Kruger to see some big fives. Next up on Fine Music Radio's Book Choice, sponsored by Exclusive Books, John Hanks is here to tell us about the latest novel by Tony Park. Tony is the author of about 20 novels set in Africa. He's worked as a reporter, a press secretary and a PR consultant. He also served 34 years in the Australian Army Reserve, including six months in Afghanistan in 2002. Tony and his wife divide their time between Sydney and South Africa, where they own a home on the border of the Kruger National Park. What did you think of the tribe, John? Tony Park is incredibly prolific. I'm curious about this one. Tony Park is a master storyteller. And if you're looking for a most enjoyable read and a good action-packed storyline, then I have no hesitation in recommending his latest novel called The Pride, a book you cannot put down and which I'm sure will appeal particularly to Southern African residents with its focus on wilderness areas in Zimbabwe and Mozambique and the Indian Ocean beaches of South Africa. On the front cover of the book above the author's name are the words, a lioness will kill to protect her own. But this story is not about lions, but about human beings and a commitment to seek revenge. Sonia Kurtz is a battle-hardened ex-mercenary with years of conflict experience who sets out for retribution after her daughter Emma is assaulted by an abalone poacher on a beach near Cape Town. I'm sure everyone knows that abalone is a prized shellfish delicacy and is part of a massive illegal and lucrative market largely dominated by the notorious gang lords of the Cape. Not long after the assault on Emma, the poacher is murdered and Sonia is blamed for the killing and becomes the target of a local gangster, forcing her to flee from South Africa, leaving a trail of destruction in her wake on the northern borders of Awange National Park. When Sonia appears to kill again in similar mysterious circumstances, a concerned Emma sets out to save her mother from the reputation of being a cold-blooded killer. So who is the real Sonia? Is she really killing to exact revenge on the assault on her daughter? Or has Sonia herself become a victim of a sinister conspiracy linked to a mysterious stranger who is following both of them around Southern Africa? I'm not going to spoil the story for you, as you must read the book to get the answer. Tony Park's novels undoubtedly benefit enormously with the authenticity he adds to his stories, based on his first-hand experience of poaching of wildlife, on which some of his stories are based, and time spent in the wilderness areas about which he writes so convincingly. Added to this are the 34 years serving in the Australian Army Reserve, including a stint in Afghanistan, giving him an understanding of weapons and how they can be used to kill. Growing up in the suburbs of Australia, he and his wife Nicola, to whom this book is dedicated, divide their time between Sydney and their home on the border of Kruger National Park. 
strengthening his obvious fascination with so much that Africa has to offer, encapsulated by his own words when he said, and I quote, nothing in my suburban background would even indicate that I would be involved with Africa. But once the addiction takes hold, it takes over your life. And I couldn't agree more. The title of this book is The Pride, is written by Tony Park, is published by Pan Macmillan, South Africa, and you can buy a copy for 270 rand. Welcome back to the show. As always, sponsored by our lovely friends at Exclusive Books. You're tuned into Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, and of course, I'm your host, Paige Nick. If you miss any of the reviews or interviews on today's show, we load the podcast of the show up on fmr.co.za straight after the show. I'm looking forward to this next review. Rachel van der Feyfer is a grade 8 student at Redham in Durbanville. Please welcome her as she shares her very first public review with us for a YA novel called The Sunbearer Trials by Aidan Thomas, published by Pan Macmillan. The Sunbearer Trials by Aidan Thomas. Set in Reino de Sol, an entire world created by Thomas and inspired by Mexican mythology, the book revolves around the eponymous Sunbearer Trials. Every 10 years, 10 semidioses, or demigods in English, are chosen to compete in these trials, a series of competitions in which the winner is celebrated as Sunbearer and the loser is sacrificed to refuel the sunstones and renew soul sacrifice made thousands of years ago, keeping their world safe from the obsidians until the next trial happens in the next 10 years. Although the book uses many common themes and plot devices of fantasy novels, it still manages to be an original, clever story. It adds a queer twist to Rick Riordan and Hunger Games-like plot, with the trans main character Teo and many queer supporting characters as well. The only problem I had with this book was the theme of child sacrifice. Although it is important to the story, I disliked the way most characters went on about what an honour is to be sacrificed, or in reality, murdered. Even the most likeable characters were ruined a little with their complete acceptance of the horrifying practice. Overall, I thoroughly enjoy the book and would recommend it to anyone looking for their next read. Thank you, Rachel. Great job. We hope you'll join us again. Listeners, if you have children, grandchildren, or employees whose young adults you think might enjoy that book, do consider picking up a copy for them. Reading really does change young lives and young minds. I'm holding a book in my hand. It's called The Quality of Mercy, and it's by Sapiwe Gloria and Lovu. I read this book, and when I was finished, I picked up the phone, and I phoned my friend Vanessa Levenstein, and I said, I've got this book, and you have to read it because I need somebody to talk to about this book. Oh, and also because I think you might enjoy it. Then I jumped in my car and I drove to her and I gave it to her. And I said, uh, you better give this back to me you when you're done because this is a book I want to keep. And of course, I still haven't given it back to Paige because <laughs> I also want to keep this book. It really is the most extraordinary book. It was so exciting that I promptly ordered the other two books called, and I'm going to look on the back because of course I can't remember, The Theory of Flight and the History of Man. You don't have to have read... No. Um, the others too. It's not one of those trilogies where you have to read the first one, the second one, the third no. one. You can pick up any of them. They have threads that run through them, but they're not based on each other. I started with The Quality of Mercy, and then I went back to the first one, which was The Theory of Flight, which was the award winning. I didn't read that one. I've only read one after that. The History of Man. The History of Man, and this one, obviously. Now, what makes this book so absolutely extraordinary? In fact, what makes all three books so extraordinary is that the author manages to capture the political and the personal 
without losing one thread. So the stories are set at somewhere in Africa, and Paige and I have been going back and forth saying, is it a real place in Africa? Well, she calls it the City of Kings, which to me is maybe Zimbabwe, but then Vanessa Googled it and... And, and we think maybe it's fictional. And maybe it's fictional, but they, she does refer to Victoria Falls. So right. you may be right, but who knows? But the point is it's quite universal. And there's a ceasefire and independence has just arrived in this African city. And she looks at the characters in this beautiful landscape in Africa and the role they have played up until the ceasefire and during the ceasefire and after the ceasefire. So this one tells the story of Spokesman Lawyer Police Officer who reminds me a little bit of the protagonist in the Louise Penny books. Oh, really? I think for me, quite similar to like an Alexander McCall Smith, but a, a much more literary and like a denser version of Alexander McCall Smith. So it's interesting. I've never read a Louise Penny. Love the Louise Pennies. And I love the man, Spokes, who just has such integrity and warmth and courage and goes through life wanting to do the right thing. I love him. Yeah. I just think to write a character with such quirk and depth like you just want to read about him this is what makes a book so good is the characters are real we know people like this people are not black or white right so even the political allegiances i mean spokes worked in the police force right. during and i keep thinking of apartheid yeah, because obviously too. one keeps yeah. comparing it to south africa during the colonial regime right. so what does that make him in the eyes of some people, it makes him a traitor. But actually, he believed he was doing good, and he was, in his way, doing good. So she never paints people with a black or white brush stroke. So a lot of the story revolves around this man, Emil, and he walks into the jungle and disappears. And then there's the policeman, Spokes Malloy, and he has to figure out what's happened to this man. So that's kind of the basis of the story, but there's so much more story in this book than that. And she keeps the tension throughout. Right. You don't want to put the book down. And it doesn't feel political. And I think that's because of the stories. To me, and I don't know if you found this, like it felt a lot like a series of short stories that were incredibly connected. Yes. Because so many stories about different characters. On the back it says a Dickensian cast. And I couldn't have thought to put it like that. But it's actually the perfect description of it. It is. It's this cast of crazy characters that are all connected to each other. And one whole chapter will be one cast member's story. This unique kind of quirky story. But it all relates to the main storyline. And you wonder when you're reading about the new character how it's going to fit in. Exactly. Like, what's the relevance of the story that suddenly picked up in the middle of the jungle and then it all ties back in again very deftly? Another thing we have to say is the covers are absolutely beautiful. They are magnificent. And if you want to give someone a gift, and Paige was mentioning this before the interview, what a beautiful gift set. Yeah, they make a perfect gift set. The first one, the theory of flight, then the history of man, and the third one, which we're talking about now, the quality of mercy. There are lots of beautiful, interesting stories and interesting people and the names are also interesting spokes because his mother was named because his mother saw someone riding a bicycle and fell in love with the wheels and the spokes and the wheels so they're all sort of interesting little intricate right. little details and throughout the whole book he works in he's obviously a policeman and the entire police force are very invested in guessing what his middle name is so his initial is m every character is continually trying to guess with ridiculous guesses. I found it very endearing and very charming, which is interesting because it's actually a political book. There's a lot of politics in it, but somehow the author manages it with such a deft touch that you almost don't realize. <laughs> You're lulled into this very safe space of these beautiful, quirky characters. It's a cliche to say that one does laugh and cry. 
Mm. So, joyous read. Thank you so much for getting into your car. <laughs> of course, now I've got to hand it back to you, and I'm holding on to it very, very <laughs> tightly. But honestly, I would urge our readers, if you're looking to get your hands onto something beautiful, to read something very special, The Quality of Mercy. That track was, wait, let me see if I can say this without torturing it. It was Por Una Cabeza, the tango from Scent of a Woman, composed by Carlos Gardel and played by the Hungarian trio. Have you managed to catch the theme of all the tracks in the show today? They're all easy listening tracks that come from some of our favorite movies, selected by Rick Everett and compiled by Dave Woods. Thanks so much, you guys. These are blockbusters. You're tuned into Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, sponsored by Exclusive Books, and I'm your host, Paige Nick. We're heading into the last half of the show now. Beryl Eichenberger is here to bring us some twisty, turny crime in the form of the latest page-turner from Irma Fenter called Red Tide. Irma's first book was published in 2012, and ever since then she's been bringing us books about strong women, interesting men, and that fascinating space between right and wrong. I first came across Irma Fenter's crime thrillers earlier this year and immediately got hooked on her inventive storytelling. Red Tide is her latest offering, which was originally published as Skarlaken in Afrikaans in 2015. She has established her status as a crime writer of note, and in Red Tide, she's certainly cracked it. Fenter's career as a journalist has offered her much source material. After all, we live in South Africa, and every day brings more challenges. Rich fodder for anyone considering a crime writing career. Suspenseful and with three-dimensional characters, 
The plot is original and quite far removed from what one could expect. This is a compelling story with chilling and vivid descriptions that take you into the heart of the Karoo landscape and a small, tight-knit community. It's a story of never giving up, a need to find the truth, however uncomfortable that might be, and at the same time to find some peace and the exposure of secrets that are all too damaging. And it's an unlikely couple who come together to solve a cold case. Those familiar with Fenter's previous books will welcome the return of the rather wacky, socially inept, motorbike-riding, convicted hacker extraordinaire Sarah Faree. She's tough and resilient, and her talent for uncovering the secrets of people's lives through technology are terrifyingly real. But she is also in a sad place, struggling to come to terms with her father's death and unable to face her grieving mother. But her intuitive skills are sharp, and perhaps her own grief gives her greater understanding of why Yarp Renica, retired top cop, can't let this case rest and asks for help. Both stubborn to the core, they make a good pair. Stubborn because it is three years since Yarp's niece, promising artist and businesswoman Yanin, was found dead in her wedding dress on the family farm a week before her wedding. Suicide or murder? But the body was left in such a way, with certain accessories, that it almost appeared to be an art installation. Hardly a suicide, you would say. Macabre? Oh, yes. And pointing towards murder. For Yarp, it is an ongoing itch, a boil that needs lancing, but he can't find the core. He's desperate for answers. And after three years, Yanin's mother, Vani, is desperate to move on and about to burn all of Yanin's possessions. And that includes the computer, which Sarah is able to snaffle. Each year, Yarp has returned to the scene, stirring up emotions, creating tension for his sister and her husband, Obi, and this is all about to explode. For Sarah, the fact that Yanin's computer was wiped clean sends up red flags, and what she discovers is disquieting and dangerous. As revealing as it is startling, the trail leads into unexpected places. The power of visual art, jealousy and close-knit friendships with a highly competitive edge move towards a burning fallout. When art can be a means to discover identity and red is the primary colour, our investigators have to use all their resources to put the pieces together and beat the clock on a date that is the key. Sarah and Yarp are two characters who play off each other in a mesmerizing rhythm which will hold you in suspense. Fenter has the capacity to ratchet up the pace notch by notch until you are unconsciously holding your breath. Expect to have an increased heart rate as you turn the pages. Original, startling and with a terrifying climax, Fenter is the mistress of small details as centimetre by centimetre we move towards the truth. She takes us on a journey that crosses the country and up to Namibia until the final confrontation, bringing us along on a wave of fear. Her plot is intricate, but the reader is always able to follow without having to turn back to see what happened. She has her finger on the pulse. And a word on translator, Karen Shimka, whose skill has brought this story into the English market. I'm so looking forward to more of Fenter and her sleuths. Thank you so much, Beryl. And now, Twanji Kalula brings his critical eye to a fascinating-sounding book called Too Big to Jail by Chris Blackhurst, 
which is inside HSBC, the Mexican drug cartels, and the greatest banking scandal of the century. When it comes to corporate thrillers, the likes of Michael Crichton, Joseph Finder, and Stephen Frey come to mind. But as those of us who live in South Africa know all too well, the truth is often stranger than fiction. Why is Steinhoff's Marcus Euster free as a bird, despite general consensus that he is guilty as sin? Why are the executives of large multinational corporations who aid a state capture not being held criminally accountable? Why are the global bankers who helped some of the world's largest criminal organizations launder billions of dollars not liable for the damage they have caused to the world? In his new book, Too Big to Jail, former editor of The Independent, Chris Blackhurst, tries to answer some of these questions. Tracing the history of one of the world's largest banks, HSBC, from its humble beginnings in Hong Kong over 150 years ago, to its rapid global expansion at the start of the century under the leadership of former CEO and chairman Stephen Green, Blackhurst explains why the desire to grow the bank at all costs led to sheer greed and some morally dubious and even criminal decisions. Spoiler alert, Stephen Green, who ran the bank, now sits in the House of Lords. The idea that HSBC was the world's local bank was torn to shreds when they were hit with a 1.9 billion US dollar fine for facilitating money laundering for well-known drug cartels and kingpins, including the Sinaloa cartel from Mexico and its leader, Al Chapo. Through gripping storytelling, Blackhurst introduces us to the bankers and executives, the criminal masterminds, government officials, and law enforcement agents who played a game of cat and mouse as billions of ill-gotten dollars moved through the global economy. Blackhurst takes us from Hong Kong and London to Mexico, Washington, and the Cayman Islands. What surprised me most about this book is how much research must have gone into it and how brave the author is. You certainly wouldn't catch me chatting to half the people he must have met up with as he was coloring in the story, which is quite unbelievable. Blackhurst is a master at weaving together the real events and the various theories about what really happened in a well-structured and easy-to-follow way. If you can barely read your credit card statement, don't write this book off just yet. You don't need to know anything about finance or money to follow the complex network Blackhurst writes about. In fact, you will walk away feeling like you could lecture Global Finance 101. The real difficult part of reading this book is accepting that most of the people involved with the various crimes have gotten away with them. As we read our books by candlelight because of our friends at ESCOM, we are reminded that some of the most impactful and damaging crimes are white-collar crimes, and more often than not, it feels as though the bad guys continue to get away with it. When a company is a bad corporate citizen and decisions are made by committee, who do you ultimately jail? And that's the question that Chris Blackhurst asks. If you love the series Narcos on Netflix or Rob Rose's book and Showmax documentary on Steinhoff, which is called Steinheist, and it's brilliant, by the way, you'll really enjoy this book. It is a thrilling, true-life tale of money and murder, power and greed, and it is one of my favorite reads this year. Too Big to Jail by Chris Blackhurst was published by Pan Macmillan and retails for 358 rand. This next track is called Cavatina. It's the main theme from The Deer Hunter, composed by Stanley Myers, and played on the guitar by James Grace. Playing for you from the Fine Music Radio Studios on Book Choice, sponsored by Exclusive Books.
recently read The Measure by Nikki Ehrlich, published in South Africa by Jonathan Ball. This is high-concept fiction. I would go so far as to say part novel, part social experiment. And it's not a spoiler to tell you that the basic premise is that every single person on Earth wakes up one morning to discover a box has been delivered to them. Inside that box is a piece of string. And that piece of string tells you the measure of your life and poses the ultimate question. If you had the option to find out when you were going to die, would you want to know? I know, right? It's a hectic premise. I'm lucky enough to be joined in the studio today by the author of The Measure, Nikki Ehrlich, dialing in from Los Angeles. And she's kindly agreed to answer five questions about this thought-provoking book she's written. Welcome to the show, Nikki. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I guess these are five questions of life and death. So let's get started. And (laughs) I'm sure you're asked the same questions about this book But these are questions, when you read it, you just have to ask them. Obviously, with a book like this, I have to ask you where the idea came from. Yes, a lot of it was inspired by um, the ancient Greek mythology around fate and their belief in the three fates, these three sister goddesses who are thought to have this power of, of spinning these threads of life on their spindle, that they would determine the amount of time that each person would receive on earth, the length of each person's thread of their life. And so I just wondered one day, what would happen if these threads were real? And if if humans could see them, how would we use them as individuals, as a broader society? And um, and really, I just thought I'm going to write a story in which I send these strings to the world and kind of unleash them and see how humanity reacts. Well, it's absolutely fascinating. I was wondering if the idea came to you in an instant when you discovered this thread story, whether you'd lived with thread story for a while and then it kind of grew on you. Yeah, I definitely lived with it for um, a while. I think it was always in the back of my head, these, these sort of larger questions about life, about why does life feel so random, so unpredictable sometimes? Um, how much power do we actually have over, over our destiny, over our fate? And so these big questions about fate and control are things that I was thinking about for a while. And then when I had this kind of a light bulb moment about the Greek mythology around fate, I thought maybe I could tackle these questions that have always, always been kind of sitting with me through this story, through this lens of these kind of magical strings. Right. And they are bigger questions. Reading this book really made me feel quite vulnerable about life in a way that I hadn't thought about it before. And I don't know if you felt that in in writing it, that you thought a lot more about when your life might end and what that might mean for you in the now. Absolutely. It was, it was a really emotional experience writing this book and stepping into the minds of, you know, very different people grappling with this same question, this same kind of challenge of, of what do I do with this knowledge of my life? So it was a chance for me to really think about these questions myself from many different perspectives inhabiting these different people. But it also made me just feel really grateful you know, to be alive and grateful, particularly to have this opportunity as I was writing to be you know, pursuing my dream of writing a book and, and how kind of fortunate I felt really just in that moment for my life and for this gift. Yeah, I must say, I felt similarly grateful about being alive when I read it. And I'm glad you talked about the people whose lives you explore Because as the book unfolds, you explore so many of the knock-on effects in society of people knowing when they're going to die. And there were just dozens of consequences that I'd never even considered from political to financial, interpersonal, societal. It feels like you covered every possible outcome. As I was like, (laughs) oh yeah, she got that. Oh yeah, but what about this? Oh yeah, you got it. I was wondering what kind of research you did 
to unearth all of these possibilities or whether it was mainly just imagination and breadth of thought that got you to all the consequences. Thank you for saying that. I appreciate that because as I was writing, I just, I kept more and more questions. And as you said, kind of areas of the world kept popping into my head. And I, at some point realized there were probably too many. I would never reach them all, but I I wanted to get as many in as I could. I think a lot of it came from the fact that I was writing about this, you know, completely unexpected, shocking global phenomenon in the middle of, of our pandemic, a very similar, you know, unexpected, shocking global crisis. And so I was able to see how that affected every corner of life, you know, from from the political, obviously, to social and very personal. And so I think watching the way that that unfolded in sort of every area, every country was something that allowed me to to sort of mirror that experience in this book and, and kind of draw the parallels between what I was writing about and what we were all experiencing over that time. Right. Did you write this over a long period of time or quite quickly? I had the idea and sort of brainstormed and sat with it for a long time. But then when I entered quarantine, I had laid, got laid off from my job. I, I was a travel writer. And of course, you know, with the, with the pandemic, um, no one was traveling. And so I was home unemployed in quarantine. And that's when I wrote it then very quickly, feeling like I had so much time all of a sudden. And also everything outside the world felt like I had little little control over what was going on. And so the only thing that really kind of grounded me and, and gave me a sense of control in my life was, was writing this book. Right. And it does have such breadth of thought. You can feel how much thought has gone into it. I wanted to ask you, I mean, of course, everybody has to ask you this, but if you got one of these boxes, would you want to know after going through this entire experience? I think after writing the book, no, I don't want to open it right now, but I'm also not decisive enough to be the kind of person who would you know, throw it into the ocean. I, I need to keep it somewhere in my house in case I change my mind later. Right. I kept changing my mind about whether I'd want to open my box or not as I read it. And I read a consequence. I yeah. was like, oh, no, actually, maybe I won't. Did you change your mind you know, from beginning to end about wanting to open it and not wanting to open it? Definitely. Um, and I think it helped that I had, I was writing different characters who made different decisions. And so, you know, my thought process on on a certain day in which I thought, oh, today, actually, I'm not going to open it. I was able to write that into one character. And then the next day when I felt like, actually, maybe I'm changing my mind, I could write that into a different character. So it was very helpful for me to work through my own thoughts through these different people. Oh, wow. Yeah. And what does one write after such a high concept roller coaster? You're busy <laughs> with another book and, and what are you going to do? I am starting another book and hopefully it sort of resonates in the same way that this one has. And what I loved about writing this book was that it had this kind of wide ensemble of, of many different people with different experiences. And so I'd like to kind of replicate that with another book and, and step into the shoes of of a whole new group of, of characters. Right. Incredible. I can't wait to read it. Um, Thank you. We don't have enough time, unfortunately, as which is what this book illustrates. <laughs> so it's ironic. <laughs> I want to say a huge thank you to Nikki Ehrlich for joining us in the Fine Music Radio studios on Book Choice to chat about her brilliant best-selling novel, The Measure. I highly recommend this book as a riveting, thought-provoking read. Thank you, Nikki. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And that brings us to the end of our 1st of November show, coming to you from our new Tuesday slot. A huge thank you to Mwandi Lobi and you in English, as always, for building this show with us, and to Exclusive Books, who always make this show possible. Also to our reviewers and authors for joining us with the best content on the continent. That's it from me, Paige Nick. We're playing out with Exodus, the award-winning theme from the film of the same name, composed by Ernest Gold and played by the Boston Pops Orchestra, conducted by Arthur Fiedler. 
Until we meet again on Tuesday the 15th of November with our second ever book choice, Publisher's Choice, where the country's biggest publishers join us to tell us what they've been working on. Till then, happy reading! Choice was brought to you by Exclusive Books, celebrating getting more books to more people. The Exclusive Books recommend selection makes it easy. By curating 25 of the most talked about and trending books hitting the shelves, 
you can, with one glance, get a snapshot of everything hot in the world of books, locally and internationally. Exclusive books also sell gifts, vouchers, stationery and more. Pop into your nearest exclusive books and feast your eyes. For more information or to purchase online, visit exclusivebooks.co.za. 